morning, everyone. Welcome here. And um, my name is Aaron. I'm the associate uh, pastor here at uh, Mountain View Church. And it's good to bring God's word to you this morning. I should say this. Merry Christmas. We can say Merry Christmas. It's after Thanksgiving. If we're following the rules, right? Um, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, I was, I was getting ready for this morning and the kind of the occasional nature of my uh, just opportunities of getting to be up in front of you and, and to preach. I think about my father who is uh, not yet a Christian. I continue to pray for him and he occasionally goes to church. He's, he's told me recently he's beginning to go to church more, uh, more often and um, I find that to be absolutely exciting. But I always appreciate uh, someone who's kind of on the, the, the fringe of church to get their take on things, to hear how they enjoy church or how they evaluate things. And one of the things he says to me, he said this over the years many times, is he says he just loves the executive pastor's preaching. Um, the, the guy who normally preaches, the senior pastor, he's okay, um, but he loves to listen to the executive pastor. And, and I thought, well, there's a reason for that. It's because he has months to prepare his sermon. Um, he has quite a while to prepare what he's going to say, how that perfect illustration is going to fit right there to get right at your heart, or how, that's, how that story, whatever, how that's all going to fit. The normal guy has to reinvent the wheel every single week. And so you should be thankful for your pastor. Um, but for, for me, I am uh, excited to to be with you to preach God's word. And I hope that you're excited as well, not because it's me, but because of what we're going to be looking at. And so if you have a Bible, go to Luke 1, uh, Luke 1, 26. We're going to be uh, beginning a new series and we're going to start in Luke 1. And this series is really all about how we look at uh, these significant passages about the birth of Christ and other passages that should get our heads in the right space to see what Christmas is all about, how it's not about Black Friday and, and consumerism, but it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his own birthday, and the significance that has for us. I want to read, actually, uh, before we even read that, just to, just to kind of set the table, uh, out of Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And if you've been around church for any period of time, you've probably heard this, but it's worth repeating. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, he, he uh, prophesies these words. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be called upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of heaven's armies, he will do this. And so hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene, Isaiah says, a Messiah is coming. And so when you get to the first century, when Jesus is born, there is a great expectation that there is going to be one who is coming to deliver Israel out of her captivity. And he is going to be the king, the Messiah, who will bring that deliverance. And so in Luke 1.26, we see how that begins to happen. And so when you read the first chapter of Luke, you see that that uh, that. God uh, arrives and he shows up to uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and he says, you're going to have a child. It's going to be John the Baptist and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. That's chapter one. But chapter, the end of uh, chapter one going forward and going to chapter two, there's another who is coming. And Gabriel shows up 
the beginning of the story in verse 26, and he shows up to a woman named Mary. And Mary is from an unimpressive place called Nazareth. She is a humble servant. I, I was reading some estimates say um, she was, may have been 12 to 14. She may have been older, but we know this. She was very young. She was humble. There's nothing impressive about her. And Gabriel shows up to her and he says these words, these famous words, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, here's what we're gonna have to do, I think, to really get into this story this morning. I'm gonna ask you, if you've heard this story 40 times, um, to do something that's gonna be very hard. Try to imagine you'd be a fly in the wall to this discussion that's about to take place. Try to put yourself maybe in Mary's shoes, and for the first time, what would it be like for an angel to show up to you and say, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, if you're in a Jewish context, you know at least one thing. For a man to say to a woman he does not know, just to show up and say, greetings, is already taboo, let alone show up to a woman who is engaged to, to a guy that she's about to be married to. Them's fighting words right there. You don't just say that to someone who's already betrothed, already engaged. You're actually maybe offending Joseph himself. And so not only does he say greetings, he says greetings, oh, favored one. Not may you be favored, but that you are favored. He doesn't say, the Lord, may the Lord be with you, but that he is with you. And, and, and Mary responds. And Mary responds, and it's, the passage says that she is greatly troubled. Your NLT will go further, I think, and really captures this. It says, she was disturbed. Now, I grew up in church, and I always understood that when an angel shows up to you, um, you're, you're absolutely terrified because of how awesome and incredible that angel is. That's what happens with Zechariah. He, ends up, he, he, he is terrified out of his mind when, when the angel shows up to him. You go in the next chapter, chapter 2, the shepherds are watching over their flocks by night, and what happens? The angels show up, and they're terrified, and they say, do not be afraid, and then they tell about the one who is Christ the Lord to come. And so they're terrified of the presence of these angels. But when you look at Mary, what is she troubled by? She isn't troubled so much by the presence of the angel as she is by the words that he says, that you, will, that you are favored. Who is she? She, she thinks, who is she that I get to be one who is favored by God? This is an unimpressive girl this is an unimpressive girl who's from a place, place that's less impressive than Bakersfield, an unknown teenager without any social status. And this angel shows up and he has words that he wants to speak to her. And she's confronting something that every Christian has to confront, this side of heaven, man, that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And she also encounters something else, that sometimes you have to wrestle with God's word. And when you wrestle with it and you accept it, you become the servant that he has always meant for you to be. And so, so Gabriel then gives some words of comfort. I love this. He says, don't be afraid, you're about to give birth. It's like not exactly the words that I would think of that would be comforting, but he says, don't be afraid, you're going to have a child. Now, uh, we're not going to put it up on the screen. Uh, this is very intentional that I, I did not want to show you this, but Justine has recorded both times that she, uh, that she has announced to me that she has been pregnant with our two sons. Um, the first time I was barely awake, um, and the second time we improved upon that. I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I was of sound mind. And my reaction was not one of comfort when she told me she was pregnant. It was a reaction of, wow, excitement, joy, 
Our lives are about to change. Finances, how is this going to work? You know, all of those kinds of things that, remember, for those of us who have had kids, what it was like to hear that kind of announcement. Now, that's in the security of marriage that I think is healthy, right? That we're doing okay, right? That we have a good marriage going on and, 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 and things are well. Yes, we can have that excitement, but what would it be? And I think each one of us knows, or maybe many of us knows, what would it be like to be a teenager in high school and find out that you're pregnant and all of your plans going into college just fell apart? What do you tell your mom? What do you tell your dad? How are your friends gonna react? If you're someone who goes to church, how's the church gonna respond to that? And put yourself in Mary's shoes. Not only that, she's engaged. So it just layers upon layers upon layers. And then Gabriel adds on to another layer and he says, you will conceive, verse 31, and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over, over Israel forever and his kingdom will have no end. Who is Mary's son going to be? It's Jesus, the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the king of the Jews. We now get Mary's second response. She responds and she says, right, so how is this gonna work? How is this going to work? I'm a virgin, how is this going to work? You know how this is supposed to work. This seems to be odd. And so she asked the question that so many of us ask in our own moments that the Lord puts us in. She asked the how question. And so this is the same question, by the way, that reverberates down the halls of all of the Bible's great heroes, so-called heroes, but we're just normal people. God appears to undeserving Abraham, and he says, you're going to have, God appears to undeserving Abraham, and he says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he says, me and my wife, in case you haven't noticed, are as old as dirt. How is that going to work? And he says, this time next year, your wife is going to give birth to a son. God appears to murder his Moses. And he says, you will lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, how am I going to do that? Because I get tongue-tied and I stutter all over the place. And God graciously gives him miracles. You know that story? He gives him miracles to demonstrate that he is the Lord, that he will take care of him. And he says, I'm going to give you your brother and he's going to be your mouthpiece for you. God appears to Elijah after Elijah has performed through the Lord incredible miracles that should have made Israel get their act together. But instead, the evil queen is out for him and depressed. Elijah goes into a depression and he essentially says to the Lord, how is this going to work out? I'm the only one that's been faithful and I'm the only one that's been left. And the Lord basically says back to him, friend, you must have missed along somewhere along the way that I'm in the business of restoring people back to myself and I have raised up 7,000 people you didn't even know about and they have not bowed the need to bail and they still serve me. And he shows up to this servant girl, this no name, unimportant girl named Mary. And through Gabriel, he says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. How? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born and he will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth, earlier in chapter one, your Elizabeth will become pre has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of of God will never fail. How, Mary? Answer, 
by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's how God accomplishes his means. The Father sends the Son, and the means is the power of the Holy Spirit. You thought I was done. And he looks at you, and he looks at me, and he looks at all of us, and all of our moments where we go, how is this going to work out? As we approach this Christmas season, and we go, how is this going to work out in my life? And let me remind you, Christian, once again, that this is the same Lord who has said to us, if I clothe the lilies of the field, and I, and I take care of the birds of the air, how much more will I take care of you, of, oh, you of little faith? Let that speak to every single one of us in here. How is it going to work out? Maybe the better question is, who do we need to turn? And his name is Christ Jesus the Lord. And so when the curtain is pulled back, you actually look at what God is doing to use an unworthy man named Abraham to make an unworthy nation called Israel to use an unworthy king, David, unworthy guy, unimpressive next to his brothers. And through his line to use an unworthy woman named Mary, he brings a worthy king called Jesus. And so the question I want to ask every single one of us in here as we serve an unpredictable God who is really in control. If you could have never predicted, you could have never predicted that this is the way this would have worked out. Jesus should have been the conquering king coming. He came through a virgin called Mary. This just doesn't seem to fit. If he came in this way, if you could have never predicted it, why in the world do you think that you can predict your own life? If God is in control over all things to bring salvation when I was not looking for him, why do I think that I can predict and I can match, map out my whole life? I don't even know what's going to happen five minutes from now, let alone five years from now. Maybe we should look at the how questions. And as we look at those how, maybe as we look at those how questions and all the curveballs that come our way, we could look at the Lord who's maybe, maybe he is unpredictable, but he's actually in control. You look at Mary here, and she's not actually filled with doubt as she answers this question, as she asks this question, how is this going to work out? You see the faith that she's filled with. She says, I am the Lord's servant. And this is the last time she replies in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel leaves her. The right heart is what is required. In God's economy, what he is looking for is he is not looking for someone necessarily who has a great social, economic, whatever, fill-in-the-blank status. He is looking for people who are faithful and who are going to serve him. And so, man, as we talk about our missions moments from week after week, as we praise the Lord for who he is and we are sent out into the community called Southeast Fresno, he is looking not for people who are just awesome and have well-known status. He is looking for foolish people like you and me to shame the wise and demonstrate that actually only he could accomplish his purposes through us to a community that needs him. That's what we see through Mary here. And Mary is faithful. When I say faithful, what do I mean by that word faith? You notice in the Bible, it never really gives us a really robust, just, just paragraph definition. I would love that in the appendix definitions. That would help me uh, of what faith is. We use words all the time like faith, hope, love, grace. Well, you ever try to define these words? What, what do they actually mean? In faith, you don't really get that besides a short little definition in Hebrews 11.1. 1. A.W. Tozer said, the Bible doesn't so much define faith as much, as much as it shows us faith in action. You want a definition of what faith looks like? Look no further than Mary who says, Father, your will be done. That's what faith is all about. Your will be done. And it's the same words as Jesus when he prays. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. 
a lesson that I have been learning in my own life. Well, let me back up and say this. Thank goodness that Mary said yes in faith. You notice that God doesn't give her everything. He doesn't tell her the whole story. He says, let me just tell you what you need to know. As I was looking at Mary, I found a brand new respect for her because she would endure things over the course of the next 30 years that no other parent would ever go through. What would Mary have said to the angel if she would have known that 30 years from, from now, she would be standing 15 feet away from her own flesh and blood, hanging on a cross for the sin of all humanity. Do you think she would have said yes eagerly in that moment if she would have known what that horror would have looked like? Ever thought about that? But she said yes with the information that the Lord gave her at the time, and that was just enough. That was just enough. And thank goodness for Mary's faithfulness because not only did Jesus come, he died, he rose again so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin. Thank you so much, Lord, for Mary's faithfulness. And it's a lesson for us that as we look at all of the how questions, how will this work out in our own lives, we can look at Mary's example and then look at ourselves and go, I may not know what's coming down the road. I, again, may not know what's gonna happen five years from now, but I'm gonna trust the Lord with the next five minutes and let the Lord take care of tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Today has, has enough trouble that I can deal with for, for this moment. And so this is who Mary is. It's an incredible example for us. We're already here, so I think it's worth saying just a couple more words about her. Perhaps you've come out of a different tradition. I, I don't want to be careful here because I, I think when we see who Mary really is, it's going to help us see how beautiful Jesus actually is. Maybe you've come out of, of a tradition that, um, uh, that looked at, at Mary as being worthy of, of praying to, as a mediator between God and man. This is the, the classic uh, Catholic view. And I just want to say this. There is no other mediator between God and man than Jesus Christ who has shed his blood for my sake and for yours. Jesus alone is the mediator. Je Jesus may have received his birth through Mary, but he is the mediator. Jesus Mary is also the God bearer, but she doesn't have like a perpetual virginity afterwards. She has other sons and daughters. You, know, you look at Matthew 13, 56, she has Joseph, Simon, Judas, James. The book of James was written by one of Jesus's half brothers. And the reason why I say all of this is not to get into a theological fight with anybody. I say this simply. When we actually see who Mary is and see how normal she is, you see how glorious the Father is. Because when you see that God uses just, just a normal person, you see how incredible glorious, incredibly glorious he is. Have you ever thought about, like really, why a virgin birth? Like why did that have to happen? Like why couldn't have the Lord have said, here's Mary, here's Joseph, make babies. Like, why didn't it just work out that way? And that first one would have been Jesus. Why does there have to be a virgin birth? And I think I want to answer it this way. It's to show that God's divine involvement in accomplishing his mission of deliverance through Israel, you couldn't miss it that God was on the move. Isn't it such a good thing that we can look at our own moments in our lives and go, man, I could not have accomplished that or I could have not gone through that and said it was just me. The Lord was present. Can you think of anything more clear than a virgin birth to demonstrate that the Lord is on the move to save the nation of Israel? I can't think of anything else. So Mary visits Elizabeth and, 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 and out of that conversation, you then get what's known as a, just the, the famous prayer of Mary. Verse 46 says this. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. 
how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary realizes that this moment is huge. And you notice how she begins. She says, God, our savior. Mary needed a savior and I needed a savior too. And let's spend the rest of our time just talking about the savior. In this passage, Jesus is described as great, the son of the most high. He will receive a throne of his father, David. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will have no end, called the son of God. Now, I would love to spend like 20 minutes just going through that. But for your sake, I will not. But I just essentially want to say this to you. Do you notice that those descriptors of who Jesus is are only the kind of characterizations that you would give for someone who's divine? You can't say his kingdom will have no end unless he's an eternal being. You can't say he is great and he is the son of the most high unless you're associating him with Israel's God from the Old Testament. This is one who is not just a king that is coming. He is, he is no ordinary king. He is the son of God. He is the divine king that's on the way for Mary and for you and for me. This is who the king is. When you read the rest of the book of Luke, you see how this king brings in his kingdom and what he does to accomplish it in ways that no one could have predicted. Uh, there's one encounter that King Jesus has with a guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, now, and I know when I say Zacchaeus, uh, there's a portion of you in this room that, that inwardly all of a sudden went, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And for the rest of us, you just went, that was so weird what just happened. Um, and I, and I, I want to say, this is, this is the product of growing up in kids' church. Your kids are having a great time right now, I'm sure. Um, so here's how the story goes. Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. He, he shows up to Jericho. He's doing ministry, and a crowd develops around him. And there's a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a short man, and he wants to see Jesus. He's too short, and he can't see over the crowd. So what does he do? He climbs the sycamore tree, right? He climbs up and Jesus sees him in that tree and he essentially says to him, Zacchaeus, get down. I'm coming over to your house. You're buying food and I'm eating. That's how this is gonna go. And so when Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector hated by his own people because he had defrauded them from, of their own money on behalf of the state, when he encounters Jesus, this king who Mary had, had, had worshiped that would bring redemption, the savior of the world, it transforms Zacchaeus. And this is what he says. He says, I will give my wealth to the poor. Right? That's quite a statement. After everything that he's done, he says, I will give my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And Jesus responds, and he says, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the same 
Savior that unworthy Mary had praised in thanksgiving as she looked forward to moments like this, has encountered unworthy Zacchaeus who, who receives transformation and reconciliation to all of the people that he had defrauded. And so we notice that when this happens, it should change. When we look at passages like this, we see what happens when the king actually encounters us. Man, it should transform how we look at our lives right now in the here and now. Right now, in this moment, as we look forward to December 25th. I want to give you just a, a few things that should change our, lastly, our perspective. And how Christians should approach Christmas. If you want to go to the next slide. First, as it relates to Mary, when you actually encounter Jesus, is it your knee-jerk reaction to praise him and worship him? I have found, I've been so convicted of something over the last few months is that I will pray for something, pray for it, pray for it, pray for it, pray for it. And then it happens. The Lord responds. He is faithful to my barely faithful prayers to him. And then I move along without circling back and going, what? Thank you, Lord, for doing that. When's the last time, man, you just were wrecked by what the Lord has done in your life? And you went, I got to praise him and thank him for being the savior that I need in my life. Let us look once again to Mary and go, let me not forget what the Lord has done and is doing and will do in my life. And let me praise him in this season. That is a far better mindset to, to have than to, than to be thinking about how you missed whatever it was on Black Friday. That's the right perspective we ought to have. Second, when you look to Zacchaeus, you see how actually meeting him transforms his life and how as a result of being convicted of how he had defrauded others, it should transform, it transforms him. It will lead us to not only be consumers like the rest of the world when we meet Jesus, it'll lead us to, to seeing what God has given us so that we can give back. Here's a passage that is so helpful that really summarizes this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus came down and got low for me. And by, by giving me so much of what I did not deserve and reconciling me to his father, Man, out of the overflow of that reconciliation, I ought to be a blessing in my community. I ought to be a blessing that, it, that doesn't prioritize the consumeristic nature of this season that it has unfortunately fallen into. But I look at the birth of my Savior that leads to the death of my Savior and leads to the, recon, to the, to the life of my Savior, and I can live that life in him. So my question for every single one of us in here is this. Out of what God has done for you, how is he calling you to be a blessing to others in your sphere of influence this week and in the coming weeks? How has he called you to be a blessing? The day before Thanksgiving, um, Justine was breaking the rules and was already doing Christmas activities. And um, I asked her, and she said I could share this story. And she was uh, watching those, those, those really cheesy, uh, uh, romantic comedy Christmas films um, that have like American actors with the fake English accents, Vanessa Hudgens, all, all of that. And I went up to her and I went, honey, why? Why, why? why do you do this to yourself? Why do, you, why do you put things like this into your eyes? And she said without missing a beat to me, she says, because they're full of love and happiness. And doesn't this world need a little bit more of love and happiness? How about you think about that? <laughs> and that's my wife. And uh, I went, I will. I will think about that. Well, honey, I, I have... I have given it some thought. Um, isn't it fascinating that there's something deep within every single one of us 
that wants this, that just loves feel-good stories. Real or not real. To have a happy ending where they ride off into the sunset or everything turns out to be all right in the end. I think that's all within each one of us, that everything turns to be all right in the end. I think lying deep within each one of us, the reason for that is because we look at this broken world. Look at this broken world. You hear about all of these things on the news. My mom says, just turn the news off. It's awful. There's something within each one of us. When we look at the brokenness of our world, there's something that cries out that we need a redeemer. We need a savior. Our greatest human need, whether we realize it or not, is a savior who will make all things right in the end. I have really good news. He has come. And he came in the flesh through an undeserving woman. And when he came, he came at the cost of his own life to bring salvation for you and me. And his name is Christ Jesus.